This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. And I say warm yourself by the fire. We have a cold one uh, up here uh, in these here parts. And uh, because of icy road conditions, uh, I am doing the show from my home studio. Uh, so there will be no live YouTube stream, no live YouTube stream uh, this evening. However, we will post the show to the YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. It'll take a few days. And then uh, once we post it, or rather Ryan White posts that, uh, we'll insert uh, some uh, some images, some JPEG images that my guest has sent along, uh, because he'll be referring to those in uh, in this first hour. All will make sense as the uh, the hour progresses, my friends. Let me give you a heads up. Coming up in the second hour, our dear friend Rosemary Ellen Guiley, paranormal investigator researcher, will be here. She joins us, of course, at this time every month, and she'll join us for the full hour. And she has a new book she's co-authored with the travel psychologist Michael Bryan, and the book is The Road to Strange, UFOs, Aliens, and High Strangeness. That's coming up in the second hour. Uh, This first hour, I'm looking forward to this. This is fascinating. You know, uh, we take water for granted. We open up the taps, and we drink it, and we splash it around. We do the dishes, but... Truth be told, we really don't know much about water. Well, at least I don't. Probably most of you don't. My guest uh, knows quite a bit more, and he's going to tell us some things about water we had. It's just, it's incredible. Water seems to have an intelligence. It seems to have a memory. And it has, uh, by all accounts, miraculous healing properties. Uh, We're going to talk with uh, an inventor, He's got over 20 patents uh, to his name. He's founded over five companies. He was the youngest recipient of the National Science Foundation grant at the age of 16. My word, 16. I was still wetting the bed. 
Well, not quite, but you get the point. Uh, and uh, just a, a remarkable uh, gentleman. And uh, under the uh, the mentorship of a Dr. Rostrum Roy at the Arizona State and Penn State Universities, he perfected the state of water with his latest patented invention. And it's uh, it's been researched by a colleague, Dr. Gerald Pollack, who concluded this water to have the highest easy water signature he's ever seen. And we'll explain what easy water is. It's also highly energetic. It's deuterium depleted and oxygenated at 102%. And uh, I just received a, uh, a sample in the mail the other day, and I've got a bottle sitting right here with me. I'm holding it in my hand. It's called Davinia, world's only pure, balanced, oxygenated, light, cellular water. And a little later, we'll meet one of his clients, a veteran of the United States Air Force, who suffered uh, radiation sickness after a plutonium leak at a uh, national laboratory, the Idaho National Laboratory, back in 2011. And this water may well have saved his life. But first, let's get the, uh, the aforementioned inventor in, the, in here, as Stephen Settlemeyer. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Thank you very much, Richard. I love that introduction. Um, can I take it for my family? <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was lovely. Thank you. Well, when I said we don't know much about water, I wasn't kidding, right? No, you were not kidding. There's, um, what, you know, going back to biblical times, there's a reason why water was holy and is holy. And going further back, if you want to go back to the age of dinosaurs, there's a real question, why, why were those animals so much larger than they are today? And, and one of the very big hints is it was the water. Uh, you know, water was a different form than it was today, and everybody takes for granted that water is the same as when water first showed up on the earth to what we drink now, and that could be further from the truth. The water that, uh, it, that is everywhere, uh, the water that comes out of your tap, how is that different than the water that's in our, the water that's in our bodies, that surrounds our cells? How does it differ? Well, first, the, the water that comes out of the tap, of course, there is no good tap water anymore. Uh, it's been fluorinated, chlorinated, polluted. It has endocrines in it. It now has nanoplastics in it. It has radiation in it. There's almost every type of contamination that there is. And so there just isn't any good water on the face of the earth anymore. And I don't care where you go. It's all been nucleated and radiated and everything else. And when we first did this, we started looking at water because this water that I invented or came up with was so radical than the water that we drank. One of the researches that to Dr. Pollock, and Dr. Pollock had found out that when water enters into your body and it's in the plasma system, in the blood system, that it actually changes its 
nuclear structure slightly. It, it likes to have more of a charge distribution around the cell than than other water does. And the reason is is because that water, when it changes itself and it changes its its um, electronic structure, is that it gives it a charge. So water in your bat water in your body acts very much like a battery. And that explains why you can only live a couple days without drinking water, but you can go for 30 or 40 days without eating food. The, the water is the battery. It's the same battery that starts, you know, the engine in your car. Well, that water in your body actually is the start for all the chemical reactions in your body. And when that runs down, when there's no more charge, it's been used up, your cells start dying, then your all your your liver dies, your kidney dies. That way you get foggy. That's what dehydration is. You don't have enough water to do the chemical reactions. It's that simple. The moment it's you the moment you take a sip of water, then does that water's structure change, or does it take time? The the moment you introduce that water from outside into your system. Does your body work its magic and change its its structure, its viscosity, and so forth, its density? No, it does not. It it takes a while. It has to get in your blood plasma to do that. What happens is around any hydrophilic surface, hydrophilic meaning water-loving surface, it does this change, but that change is only about 377 millionths of an inch. Change where it changes its electronic structure to become a battery. So the the bulk water that you drink doesn't do that till it gets into your plasma system, into your blood system. And when it does it, and it surrounds the cells, uh, you know the cells are inundated by your blood plasma. When that happens, then it changes. And, and, and you so- know, you just hit on a very good point too. There's a big question about what is hydration, and I've gone to water conferences and spoke to many scientists and and doctors and everything else and had them try to define hydration. And you see all these claims about water hydrates and this type of water will hydrate or that type of water hydrate. And what I found out just actually within the past month, my definition of what hydration is, did you know that if you take a red blood cell and you put it into pure water, distilled water, that red blood cell will blow up? It'll blow say, up. It will blow up because it will absorb so much water. It'll just keep getting bigger and bigger until it blows up. Well, it turns out that that led me down the path of, of trying to figure out what was hydration. And it turns out to be a very simple, simple medical concept that's been in front of us for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and no one could answer it. Do you know what osmolality is in your blood plasma? I do not. Okay. In your blood plasma, of course, you have cells, and cells are swimming around, and your liver and kidney, and your whole body is made up of blood or of cells. And then you have the plasma, which flows through, which is water, plus solutes, salts, enzymes, hormones, everything like that that swim in this this 
this conduit of blood. Well, there's an equilibrium between the amount of solutes or the stuff that's in water and the inter- interior of the blood c- of the cell, I'm sorry. So there's an equilibrium, it's osmosis. Some water flows in, some water flows out with that stuff, and it balances itself. Well, when you drink pure water, when you drink good water, what happens is you lose the lower the osmolality of your bloodstream. And when that does, there's a basic concept that water flows from low osmolality to high osmolality. That's kind of the concept of reverse osmosis. I think you've probably heard that. Right, That's sure. That's we clean water. Yes. The same type of thing happens in your body. And, and so whenever you lower, by drinking pure water, you have more water and you have less solute, that ratio. What that does is that makes water go into your blood cells. And when more water is in the blood cells, it tries to balance itself out by excreting the toxins that are in there so they can filter it, plus the salts and the enzymes and stuff, so there's a balance. So every time you drink good, pure water, you hydrate yourself, and that causes more of this easy water to occur. You have more water in there. You have a better chance of creating this battery, and it makes you healthier. When you drink unpure water, when you drink alkaline water, which has a lot of solutes in it, what happens is it raises the osmolality of your blood, which causes the water to flow out of the cell into the bloodstream, dehydrating you. Same reason why runners dehydrate or athletes dehydrate. What they do All right, is Stephen, they, I, gotta, they, I have to jump in. That music is coming up. means we've got to fly away to a break. We'll come right back, continue to discuss pure water, clean water, divinia water, how you make it, how it can heal us. Back with more in a moment right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Stephen Settlemeyer is with us, and we are talking about, uh, well, it's Divinia Water, the world's only pure, balanced, oxygenated, light cellular water. In uh, a few minutes, we'll bring in Ralph Stanton, a veteran of the U.S. Air Force, who was exposed uh, to an uncontrolled release of plutonium while he was working at the Idaho National Laboratory and uh, consequently suffered numerous health issues. And uh, then he crossed paths with Stephen Settlemeyer and his water, and we'll tell you what happened. Um, so a water molecule, uh, two hydrogen, one oxygen, H2O. Um, are we talking, is this the water that's inside your body? And then I want to talk to you about how your water is, is, is made uh, or created. But the, the, the water that you've been describing in our, in our body that surrounds our cells, that uh, uh, is inside our cells... Uh, is that a different phase of water? Does it have more hydrogen or more oxygen? 
Actually, it doesn't have that. It's just that, like you said, there's two hydrogens and one oxygen. And how those interact, how, how they bond together is very important. If I can give you an analogy, let's say there's a hockey game, and all of a sudden everybody comes together in one place, and they bond together, right? They're rooting for their team. And then all of a sudden they, the game's over and they leave and they go spread out again. But that's kind of what water does. Water is a very social animal, and it makes bonds for a very short time, like a trillionth of a second to a millionth of a second, then it breaks up and it leaves again. But while it's making that those bonds, it's a very tight bond. It's like you're in there rooting for your favorite hockey team and, and they're doing good and everybody's happy and going in the right direction. Then when the game's over, everybody leaves and goes back to their own place again. But that's what water does, but on a very fast trillions of a second type of, of time domain. So when it does also, if if we also say when you're sitting right next to another person in the hockey game, you know, you can touch them and yell and pat each other on the back, that indicates a very strong bond. Now, if those those seats were about six feet apart, you would still feel a bond. You'd look over and wave at the guy and say, yeah, you know, and that sort of stuff. But that bond wouldn't be as close. You you wouldn't be as as close. So water, when it gets into a cell, it changes itself and it becomes what I might call looser. What that means is that the hydrogen and oxygen tend to want to be able to break apart easier. And because they can break apart easier, then you have an oxygen. Of course, oxygen is known as an oxidizer. That's what they use in the rockets. Of course, you have to have oxygen to have fire. That's a chemical reaction. And you also have hydrogen. And as you know, hydrogen is very combustible. It carries a lot of energy. So water actually carries a potential lot of energy. And it has oxygen to make that, you know, the oxidize to make things happen in your body. And obviously we need oxygen to live and to do chemical reactions. So when that water gets in your body and it gets around a cell, it kind of rearranges itself so that it can make the oxygen and the hydrogen more bioavailable All right. to do the chemical reactions. That That's what it's really doing. That's a great now, analogy in, because you're speaking to a Canuck hockey. Uh, yeah. uh, I, very quickly, just because, you know, we need uh, far more time and, and we'll revisit this again. I'll have you back on. But let me ask you how your, and I'm looking at a bottle right here. I'm going to, I'm going to open it up and uh, I'm going to try to open it up. Boy, those, that's really sealed. I'll have to do that later during the break. Uh, but uh, I mean, how, how is your water created? How, how is Divinia water made? Uh, the first thing we do is we purify it 16 times. So we we purify it to the point where it's a medical-grade water. In fact, it's above medical-grade water. Then we run it through a distiller machine to actually distill the water after that. So everything, you would think everything is gone after that. 
except now is I sent you one of these pieces of pictures I showed you. There's now nanoplastics in our water. And I'm talking about nano-nanoplastics. And everybody's now drinking plastics no matter what. I don't care where your water comes from. You're drinking nanoplastics. Uh, even if it's spring water. Even if it's small is. Even if it's spring water coming from deep even within the bowels of the water, earth? Okay. It, it makes no difference where the water comes from. They, they found, you know, close to 98% of the people in the world are drinking nanoplastics, period. So that means somehow you're building plastics up in your body all the time. So what we do after we've purified it 16 times, distilled it, we then run it through another device, which is a distiller, but it's also a resonant chamber. That is, it resonates at the frequency of the OH stretch bond. Now, remember I talked to you about, you about hydrogen and the oxygen, and the distance that those two guys are close together is called their stretch bond. So there's a distance between the oxygen and the hydrogen that are bound together. Just like if you're in a hockey arena, if the seats are close together, they're tightly bound. But if the seats are six feet apart, yeah, they're not so tightly bound, right? Right, right. So, so what we do is we put energy into that bond and we stretch it. And we make the oxygen and hydrogen still want to root for each other or root for the team for each other. But they're stretched. They're six feet apart. So that uh, if, let's say, a pretty girl comes in between those two guys, there's going to be competition for it, right? <laughs> so um, now the oxygen and the, the hydrogen molecules are in an open relationship. Is that what you're telling yeah. me? <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> I don't That's approve. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, and for the girls, if there's two girls rooting and a good-looking guy comes in between, okay, so not to, you know, be equal here. All right. So what happens is that if, if uh, that oxygen and hydrogen, if either one of them sees something that's more attractive to them, they want to go do that. So they're, they're in a very open, loose relationship. So the oxygen says, oh, I've got to go over to this amino acid and make it into another amino acid. And the hydrogen says, well, I've got to supply energy for it. That's what happens. And it's very loose. In fact, when we did the testing on this, we went to a materials science lab at Penn State under Dr. Russ and Roy, and we looked at it on the nuclear level, and we looked at the bonds and how tight the bonds were, and we found out the bonds in our water has the amount of energy in it that steam does, but at room temperature, or our water's at room temperature. If you heated water up to steam, of course, it'll burn you, but it makes chemical reactions go a lot faster. That's how much energy is in our water. Hmm. So at room temperature, we have a lot of energy in that. That's why when we tested concrete, we found out that it would cure concrete in four days instead of 28 days. and it So it cures seven times faster. And on top of it, it cures almost twice as strong. And we did other tests with wine and, and beer and uh, vodka and everything. We burned it in a gasoline 
engine. We could run uh, 80% water, 20% gasoline, and run it just as efficiently. So it has a lot of energy in it. That's also why we bottle it in that glass, because if we bottle it in plastic, it will actually dissolve plastic. Oh, my word. So, Is that so why I'm having such a hard time trying to open it? Yeah. Oh, there we go. Okay, I've, I've so opened it. That is the reason oh. we, we want to make sure that those caps are good so no one can open it and play around with it. And how how am but, I how does one consume this water? Just you just drink the entire bottle straight down. You don't you don't pour it in a glass. You just drink it right out of the bottle, no, one bottle at a just, time. Yeah, uh, people will drink anywhere from four to eight bottles a day of that. And, and after they, it, one of the things I don't know if you've got it open. If I do, did, and I just took a sip. A I'm sorry. I've opened it and I've taken a sip. Okay. That has no aftertaste, does it? N- zero. No, it's just wet. <laughs> it's yeah. just wet and <laughs> now, no now, no taste. Try smelling it, Richard. See if you can smell anything in it. I don't. You you're right. You don't. After you drink this bottle, if you get a chance, go to a, your tap and smell it. <laughs> right. We have people okay. so sensitive this to water. People are so sensitive that people can tell if where it was bottled at if someone had perfume in the room at that time when it was bottled. Interesting. We have people so sensitive that the, we had one gal down in Florida that was allergic to water, and she could not drink water, so she got IVs all the time. I she had no idea that was even water, possible. Started drinking our water, and she was fine. Okay, but... Uh... Let's face it. I mean, how it's not how practical is it for people to only drink this water? I mean, that would be cost prohibitive. Is there not a way that you could that we could use this technology at the city's drinking uh, or at the the water uh, uh, plant uh, and send this out and have this coming through all of our taps? Is that possible? The answer, unfortunately, is no, because there is. So many problems between where the water is cleaned at the at the central city or at the central plant to where you get in your tap. Um, you know, there's lead pipes, as you probably know. Uh, there's plastic pipes. There's roots growing in there. Uh, you know, there, there's just too many problems along the way. You really do have to just drink it out of the bottle. Now, it's expensive because of the shipping right now. Our major goal is to open these plants up in all the major cities. So you will be able to buy this at a very reasonable cost. Right. Be able to drink it all the time. Most of the people right now that are drinking it have health problems or they don't want to have health problems. Uh, If someone has health problems, give me a kind of a laundry list of things that uh, Divinia water can, can uh, I mean, obviously we can't make claims that it heals this or it heals that, but w- anecdotally, what are people saying about Divinia water, people who have health issues? Okay, and uh, thank you for making that clear that I can make no FDA claims and I am not making any claims whatsoever. All I'm relating is some 30-party uh, 
anecdotal responses that we've seen back to us. But a lot of people that have had kidney problems or have been on kidney transplants to receive new kidneys have returned back to health. People who have had liver problems that were on a liver transplant returned back to health. People who had hepatitis C returned back to health. Uh, people who were depressed that had uh, suicidal tendencies, uh, that cleared up for them. Um, Parkinson's, we've got several people that have had Parkinson's that uh, can't function no matter what, no matter what medicine they get. When they drink this on a regular basis, um, they're totally functional again. Um, we've had people with some cancer problems that, and whether they're fighting the cancer or whether they've gotten chemotherapy and they have side effects from the chemotherapy, it has totally and uh, almost completely eliminated the side effects of chemotherapy and have reduced a lot of cancers. Very quickly, because we're heading into a break, uh, Stephen, how, how, how much water do you have to consume in order to see these health benefits? Usually people drink four to eight bottles a day and they see some health benefits within two weeks. Interesting. All right, we'll take a quick time out, come back. Uh, Stephen Settlemeyer, DivinyaWater.com, D-I-V-I-N-I-A, D-I-V-I-N-I-A, DivinyaWater.com. We'll also meet Ralph Stanton, U.S. Air Force veteran exposed to plutonium, uh, who has quite a story to tell. We'll come back and uh, do just that in mere moments. Stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are talking about water. Uh, it is miraculous. Uh, no question about that. Uh, Stephen Saddlemeyer is with us, DaviniaWater.com. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, as we're talking about this, all the references to the living waters in the Bible, uh, a Song of Solomon, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. Uh, in, um, I think it is in, uh, in John, uh, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Uh, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of this heart will flow rivers of living water. Uh, is that what you're trying to create here, Stephen, the living waters of the Bible? Yes. I, unequivocally, yes. You know, the Bible said water will cure and water's been holy since the beginning of man. Uh, the Garden of Eden, there was the spring in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Jesus talked about being baptized all the time. John the Baptist had to baptize Jesus. Yes. Unequivocally, yes. And I'm uh, not trying to create it. I, I, I will say that this was given to me. Um, I didn't know what I was creating. I was trying to make pure water for my wife. 
because the water that we were drinking was not doing us very good. And we had a commercial distiller and it broke 30 times over three years. And, and, uh, I, I, I was the same as almost every other person on the face of the earth that water is water. And until I started delving into this, finding out that water is very different, uh, I had no clue to it whatsoever. And this has totally opened up my eyes. I want, I want to point out, too, just to establish your bona fides, you're no sort of backyard tinkerer uh, who's, you know, who's doing this, this basement full time. I mean, you, uh, you invented fiber optic television. This is the, the forerunner or the predecessor, I should say, to high definition television. You invented fiber optic television. I mean, you are, uh, you're a world-class inventor. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I, I will admit that uh, I helped with the Viking lander, the stuff that's on Mars up there. Uh, I was a rocket scientist when I was 16, 17 years old, did theoretical mathematics. And I was the first person ever to produce high-def TV of over a million pixels in the world. And uh, my, even my current, the, the patents that uh, led to that are also the current patents that are being used for the flat-screen TVs. In fact, in 1985-84, I predicted that screens would be four foot in diameter and that you would be an inch or half an inch thick and weigh 50 pounds, and you would hang them on the wall just like a picture. And I was uh, running over the barrel over that. But all of the uh, hearings that were in front of Congress were based upon my patents and whether we should ever get into high-def TV or not. All right. Yes, I, I think we've established your your bona fides. So now you've turned your energy to water. Uh, now this is a short segment, so I got a couple of quick rapid fire questions, and then when we come back, we're going to bring Ralph Stanton in here. Uh, does water have intelligence? Yes, but let me caveat that it has a lot of intelligence, but not like you and I think think. Um, cognizant intelligence. It has kind of a static intelligence, but that has to do with what I was telling you about the bonds and the stretching of the OH. It remembers that something caused that. It, it will go into a permanent state um, so that it kind of distorts, and that distortion is what is the memory. Now, is it intelligent? Yes, it knows that if it's longer, if the bonds are longer, it's easier to do a chemical reactions. If the bonds are tighter, then it knows it's harder to do it, or it is harder to do it. So it has this innate ability to be able to reconfigure itself to do chemical reactions. So in that sense, it is very smart. Uh, where, where do you stand on the, the work of the late Masaru Emoto, the, the idea that, that human consciousness has an effect on the molecular structure of water? Um, that is part of what I told you about the very quick um, structuring of water or the, the arrangement of water. Um, I know, I'm very familiar with that test, and I know his son also. And we speak every now and then every year at a water conference. And um, I, I'm not quite 
Yes, it does. Uh, uh, let me tell you a great story about that. Dr. Russ and Roy did a, a test where he had a monk in Russia pray over a beaker of water in his labs at Penn State, and they arranged it via satellite. The second, the millisecond that that monk started praying, the water in his lab changed. And the monk kept chanting and praying over the water. And then when he stopped, that water went back to normal again. So I totally believe that human consciousness or vibrations can change water. The question is, how long does it stay? Ah, interesting. Quick question uh, before the break, and that is university studies. Have they, have there been, for example, peer-reviewed studies on your water? Yes, there have been, and they've been published, uh, peer-reviewed. Now, interesting, we are going to start looking at doing medical clinical trials that prove uh, what I say about this water being able to help the bodily functions. And we will be the only water on the face of the earth that could ever medically claim and prove that this water does what we say it's going to do. Uh, all right. Then the, then the question is, how do we, uh, I mean, how do we mass produce this? Or how do you do that? How do you scale up so that we can, well, we, we, there's that music. We'll, uh, we'll come back and uh, we have to get uh, Ralph in here. Uh, but we'll also touch on that question that I just asked. Stephen Settlemeyer, DivinyaWater.com. The Living Waters, perhaps. Back with more in a moment. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Uh, Stephen Settlemeyer is the CEO of Divinia Water, DiviniaWater.com, D-I-V-I-N-I-A. D-I-V-I-N-I-A dot com, or sorry, DivinyaWater dot com. And his water um, is said to have the highest easy water signature, and it is also highly energetic. It is deuterium depleted and oxygenated at 102%, and uh, he uh, is joining us from uh, Idaho now, let's bring in Ralph Stanton. Uh, Ralph is a veteran of the United States Air Force. He served in the Gulf War in 1990. And uh, in 2003, Ralph was hired as a security guard for the Idaho National Laboratory. Uh, then in 2011, Ralph, along with 16 of his colleagues, were exposed to an uncontrolled release of plutonium. While working on site at the INL, and after the accident, Ralph faced numerous health issues and legal battles and uh, felt his, his and his family's lives were destroyed. And then, of course, he crossed paths with Stephen Settlemeyer. Ralph Stanton, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Thanks for joining me. How are you? Oh, I'm good, Richard. Thanks for having me. So, uh... 
I gave sort of the thumbnail sketch there, the uh, the plutonium exposure. Just tell me a little bit about that. How did, what happened exactly? Well, uh, first of all, I was hired as a security guard, but uh, in 2007, I was rehired as a nuclear facility operator at the uh, Zipper uh, facility, which houses uh, metric tons of uh, weapons-grade uh, plutonium uh, and also uranium-235. And so uh, the day that I was exposed, I was exposed with 16 others. We uh, brought in some plutonium plates, opened them up inside the work hood, and the work hood looks a lot like a salad bar, which um, is vented uh, with exhaust ventilation, kind of sucks it through the back, uh, through ventilation, kind of like a vacuum. And uh, anyway, we put the plates <clears throat> in there, and then we opened up a, what is called a clamshell. It's about a, a six by 12, two pieces of metal that, uh, that uh, screw together, and inside those, uh, there are plutonium plates are about the size of a Hershey candy bar. And uh, if you think about the chocolate as being the plutonium and the wrapping being the stainless steel cladding, you can kind of visualize uh, what it might look like. So it right. looks like a stainless steel candy bar. So anyway... And the ventilation the, system was not working properly, or how did the exposure occur? Well, the ventilation system had not been working properly for up to a year. And then on top of that, they took out uh, the contamination alarm that hadn't been working. They took that out uh, due to the cost of uh, replacement. And then... Uh, Unbeknownst to us, they had uh, the plutonium plates. Uh, they were warned almost three years prior to this accident that the uh, plates were defective and uh, warned against the exact same scenario that happened to us by the independent review safety chairman. Who oh, my. We, just before. We could, we could so do a whole anyway, two-hour show just on this. What, we could that, do it Sorry, Ralph, we could do a full two-hour show just on this, but I, unfortunately, I just have a few moments. Yeah. What is, so give me a, so after the exposure, uh, what sort of uh, uh, ill health did you suffer? Uh, I suffered radiation poisoning, uh, uh, acute radiation syndrome, vomiting, nausea, diarrhea. Uh, my lymphocyte, which is the white blood cells, were down uh, to just under 50% of their normal levels. Uh, you know, so I was, I was pretty sick for a little while there. And um, as time went on, I uh, just got, uh, got sicker, started uh, having nosebleeds. Uh, just wasn't feeling well at all. And then my wife um, finally said, hey, uh, you know, I'm gonna take you to the doctor. We're gonna get uh, some tests done and see what's going on with you. And uh, they, they ran a bunch of blood work on me, and uh, they came back and said that uh, my uh, liver, my kidneys were uh, uh, not fun, they were failing, and my bone marrow, they, they were all full of uh, this heavy metal. And uh, Is anyway, it fair to say you were they, dying? What's that? 
Is it fair to say that you were dying? Well, they did not say that. They told me that they were going to keep me as healthy as they could for as long as they could. I don't think right. that they ever, uh, you know, they never told me I was dying, but that's exact. That's their exact words. Uh, so my liver, my kidneys were uh, in the beginning stages of failure. And um, basically, we're always taught that once the radionuclides, once they uh, get into your liver, get into your kidneys, get into your bone marrow, uh, there's no medical way uh, that is known to get them out. And so um, that my mindset was just, uh, you know, just that I would try to keep as healthy as I could for as long as I could. I, I didn't think I had very long. Um, when, but, when did you cross paths with Stephen Settlemeyer and his water? Well, right about that time, because my wife had uh, crossed paths with another lady who was buying the water uh, for her mother and told us about Steve. My wife, being a very dominating lady, and in charge of me, which is a good thing, I guess. But uh, she told me that uh, she said, we're going to go buy and meet Steve. And uh, you're going to drink this water. At the time, I just, I really didn't think that uh, water could do anything like that, uh, that it was going to help me. But um, Steve, I uh, met Steve and, uh, you know, he took me out to his garage at the time, showed me the whole, uh, looked like uh, the nutty professor. And uh, it was kind of, kind of quite a sight to see all the, uh, uh, the water set up that he had. And then the final product dripping, uh, you know, after all these uh, all these different machines that uh, the water was going through. And so I uh, started drinking the water. And about three months later, they took my blood again and noticed that um, my kidneys and my liver had uh, made a uh, quite a dramatic turnaround without any way of uh, explaining it. How and much water were you I drinking, Ralph? How many bottles a day? How many bottles a day? I would drink probably a half a gallon to a gallon a day is what I was drinking. And so finally, after about eight months, I was completely uh, back to normal. Everything was back to normal. And and so uh, I, I let uh, the secret out to my doctors what uh, I'd been doing. And uh, they invited Steve to come by and, and uh, give a little bit of a presentation because uh, medically they uh, had never seen that. So it was, it was uh, quite a, you know, it was quite a, a neat thing for my family to experience. I'll bet. What about the, the, your colleagues at the INL? Uh, how many of them are still living? How many of them were put on this water regimen? None of them, as far as I know, were put on. This wasn't done through the government. This was this was just done through me. The government, uh, our con our uh, employer, we caught them falsifying our doses, and so um, they pretty much got away from having any responsibility for it at all. Basically, said that we 
caught the flu, uh, those, you know, the uh, acute radiation syndrome symptoms were the flu. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I mean, I, there yeah, must have been a, a huge <laughs> class uh, action lawsuit here. Well, that's a 10,000-page uh, uh, novel by itself, Richard. No, no question. Well, yeah, we'll have to do another show on that. But did, 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 did you, do you know the status of any of your colleagues' health? Well, one of the guys that uh, was standing next to me, uh, and the reason why I don't know is because they fired me. I uh, asked them, I started asking them for uh, medical and radiological information on me, and uh, they would not give it. And, and I finally confronted them about uh, what I had caught them doing, and uh, they just fired me. Uh, okay, so, so you lost contact anyway, with your colleagues. I don't have any. I don't, what was that? You lost contact with your colleagues. Right, right. Okay. There was one of them that was having a lot of respiratory issues. Um, one of the guys contacted me. One of the um, uh, sixteen contacted me because he had uh, he had three miscarriages, and. Uh, after having three perfect kids, they had three miscarriages. He was told that he didn't get any kind of a dose. All right. Uh, now, um, because we're running up against the uh, the end of the show here. Uh, okay. So, Ralph, you're you're like you're still drinking the water, but you're fully on the mend, full liver and kidney function. And what about the yes. bone marrow? Um, the bone marrow, I'd have to get another uh, bone marrow biopsy to uh, check it, but all of the blood markers that are connected to the bone marrow are are right where they should be. This fantastic Along news. with, yes, the perfect functioning uh, kidneys and liver. That is, that's terrific. Uh, Stephen, are you there? Yes, I am. All right. So are you still producing this out of your garage? No, no. We've moved into, the, actually, this is our second building, a commercial building now. We've raised some money with the help of some friends. And we are continuing to increase the production of this. Our total goal is to be able to make factories in a box where we build these in the shipping containers. We ship the containers to a city, open them up, and we start producing the water right there in the city. So to sort of decentralize it so every city would have its own living water supply, manufacturing um, uh, plant. Yes, I want everyone in the world to be able to have this right in their backyard. This is uh, this is uh, pretty exciting stuff, and uh, we're going to have to do this again. We're going to have to we're going to do a two hour show on this. It's not enough time. Uh, but Stephen, this has been absolutely fascinating. And again, it's DaviniaWater.com. DaviniaWater.com. Ralph, thank you for telling your story. This is amazing news, and I'm so happy to hear that you're on the rebound. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you, Richard. Thank you, Richard, thank you. very much. All right. Stephen Settlemeyer, DaviniaWater.com, and Ralph Stanton, uh, U.S. Uh, Army Air Force, or sorry, U.S. Air Force veteran, and uh, was exposed exposed to plutonium, and now seems to be fully on the mend. All right, my thanks to Ian Robertson. Back. Oh, wait a minute. No, we've got another hour to go. <laughs> we have Rosemary Ellen Guiley on the other side. Stay with us on the Conspiracy Show. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul trek, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hello and welcome to all of you listening in on our flagship station here in Toronto, Zuma Radio, AM 740. 96.7 FM, all of you checking us out on one of our affiliate stations across North America. The podcast, of course, don't forget the new one, Conspiracy Unlimited. Drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Uh, those of you who normally check us out on the, the, the YouTube channel, just a programming note, no live YouTube, YouTube stream tonight. Uh, that will resume next week. Uh, and unfortunately, just due to the icy road conditions, I'm doing the program from home. Albert and Ryan are staying home where it's safe. So again, no YouTube stream uh, tonight, but we will post this show on the YouTube channel within the next several days, and we will resume the live YouTube stream next week. However, and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Well, it is that time of the month when we get a, a visit from one of our faves here, a dear friend of the program, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, paranormal researcher, investigator, the author of over 65 books, nine of them major encyclopedic works, and she has a brand new one out, uh, co-authored with the uh, travel psychologist Michael Bryan, and this one is called The Road to Strange, UFOs, Aliens, and high strangeness. Rosemary, welcome once again. How are things in snowy Connecticut? Not much different than up there uh, for you, Richard. We've had snow, ice, rain. The roads have been messy. Joe and I are staying in this weekend. <laughs> Same here. Yeah, these are the kinds of winters, or this is the kind of winter I remember as a, as, as a kid. Just lots and lots of snow. And it seems to me we've sort of gotten off easy over the last several years. But this is more like the ones I remember. I would agree for New England here in Connecticut. Uh, we usually get a fair amount of snow, and um, it, it has been light for several years, and now this is more like what I would consider normal. You know, I've been in uh, uh, the East Coast area for, oh gosh, about 30 years now, and I would say this is a typical winter. I like it, actually. I like lots of snow. Uh, now, you're staying put, I'm staying put, but this is a road, or this is a book about travel and the experience, the paranormal experiences that people have while while traveling. Now, this is sort of the second uh, in this theme, correct? You wrote one previously about this same sort of thing. Yes, our first book was called The Road to Strange. That's sort of the series title that we're giving it. And, and it was uh, Travel Tales uh, of the Paranormal and Beyond. Uh, and it was about how travel in general just opens us up to extraordinary experiences of all kinds. Now, for the second book, um, not everyone is actually on a trip when they have their UFO experience. Uh, we're extending travel into an interdimensional area because some people are right in their own 
backyards when they have an amazing sighting of a ship or a close encounter uh, with something or they have a, a bedroom visitation. Both Michael Bryan and I have been involved in ufology for a long time. In fact, uh, Michael was so heavily involved in MUFON for a good number of years that they started calling him the MUFON ambassador. And uh, in his travels around the world collecting uh, uh, unusual stories from people, uh, a good number of them fell into the UFO and alien category. Now, the book is uh, divided into four main sections. I know what I saw, mystery lights and craft, alien encounters, and then high strangeness. Just walk me through quickly each category with a brief explanation. I know what I saw is very important because uh, this involves uh, sightings. It could be um, mystery lights in the sky, close encounters with craft, uh, and um, witnesses find that they're often dismissed and ridiculed. And the the mantra in ufology has uh, become for years, I know what I saw. You know, it, it was not fog. It was not, uh, we have one story from New Zealand, an amazing UFO encounter uh, with a, a film crew in an airplane. And the official explanation was that, uh, which is captured on film, and the official explanation was, oh, it was reflected squid boat lights off clouds. You know, just the, the crazy explanations that debunkers come up with. And so this is a very important category because so many things fall into that. Um, the mystery lights and crafts, uh, that's a very common experience where uh, people are just out, they're out in the countryside or driving or they're out in their backyard enjoying the night sky, and suddenly something that doesn't seem to be of Earth origin intrudes upon them. In alien encounters, we advance to uh, actual encounters with uh, non-human beings, uh, beings who, who come in craft and get out, uh, have some sort of engagement with people, or uh, people see beings inside of craft, or they're visited in their bedrooms. We have some uh, really scary stories of abductions, and we also have stories of, of people who say that their encounters have been beneficial and that they're participating in some sort of hybrid program that's going to be for the benefit of everyone. And then we just really had to include high strangeness, which is all the weird things that seem to go along with UFOs and and aliens, you know, um, missing time, um, portals that seem to open into other realities, men in black, the the, uh, strange uh, entities that visit people and threaten them when they've had encounters. Uh, And uh, all of these things are part of the big um, um, synergistic um, picture of uh, what happens to people when they come in contact uh, with something that does not seem to be earthly. One of the interesting themes, uh, particularly in the I Know What I Saw section of the book, is the why me factor. Uh, People were wondering why they were chosen to see a particular craft, uh, and almost as if there was an intelligence being directed at them. They may not have seen it, but they felt it. And one such case actually leads off the book from a, a woman by the name of Anita Sowles. Remembering a case over 50 years ago in the town of Los Molinos, California. Tell me about that. Well, it was um, uh, a family uh, that had a, they had a dairy farm, and one night um, they saw a craft, um, not 
real close to the farm, but about a quarter of a mile away. And uh, Anita's brothers took off. Uh, they wanted to find out what was going on. The family reacted in, in different ways. She had a sister. She and her sister went out and, and um, actually saw the craft, and Anita stood practically right under it. It was absolutely immense because it did come very close. Her father didn't want anything to do with it. He sat at the dining room table continuing to eat his dinner. Oh, it must just be a government thing. I'm not going to think about it. And her mother was too scared uh, to, to even contemplate it. And so Anita gets a very close look at this craft and observes its size. It's round. It's got uh, rotation to it. There are lights around the edges and colors. And um, it's interesting that you said the why me factor. And in fact, we, we do have that. It's like, why me? Why, why was I singled out? Um, this is a theme that crops up over and over again, where people feel that uh, somehow the experience was meant for them or they noticed something and whatever intelligence was behind it noticed them noticing and responded in kind. And uh, as uh, uh, the reader goes through the book, this theme crops up over and over again. Why, why did I have this experience? Uh, and so for Anita, it was, it was really a life-changing experience. This is another theme that um, uh, you will find throughout the book as well, that even with just a sighting of a craft, it doesn't have to be like a, a close encounter face-to-face with alien beings, it can change your life forever about what is out there. And um, people often feel very insignificant, very powerless, that there's something far greater, more intelligent uh, than they are, um, and that these intelligences or beings have the ability to find them whenever and wherever they want. And in her case, uh, she went to bed every night filled with fear and anxiety that this craft was going to return, perhaps take her. Uh, and it's like she, she prayed every night, if you come and take me, please leave my family alone. How long did that last? Well, it lasted for a good number of years. And uh, even after the major anxiety, it's almost like post-traumatic stress syndrome. Uh, even after um, the, the main anxiety has subsided, it's always in, there in the back of somebody's mind that um, the world isn't quite the same as it was before they had their experience. And some people feel their safety zones, uh, you know, kind of violated. Now, in Anita's case, uh, as far as we know from her account, um, nothing like that ever happened to her again, but she was always considering the possibility that it might, or since they seemed to know where she was, um, something else might happen. You know, they might come back and she might have a different kind of encounter. Uh, and she also found that other people weren't interested. And uh, this is um, a theme, especially in the section, I know what I saw. They try to tell their, um, uh, talk to their family members. Their family members don't want to talk about it, or they deny it or, or uh, shrug it off as, um, you know, non-UFO. Uh, friends just kind of laugh. And uh, Anita had a very good friend who said, oh, yeah, you're really into that stuff, aren't you? Ha ha. And so the witness then, the experiencer, feels totally minimized and isolated. Uh, and that's a very scary spot for a lot of these people to be in. For sure. Uh, there's also a, a possible um, 
element here of missing time. Her two brothers took off in the van in hot pursuit of this uh, this craft or these craft. I think she said there were five. Uh, and I don't think they caught up with them, but the she calculated the trip there and back should have taken a certain amount of time. They were out much further. Uh, so she she suspects there may have been some missing time. And there might very well have been. I think it was about 45 minutes or so that were unaccounted for. Uh, and uh, nobody wanted to go down that road, so to speak, to um, consider what might have happened. Now, we have another story later on in the book where um, four hours of missing time occurred to uh, a couple of sisters. And... Um, or it might have been two or three sisters, and one of them underwent uh, regression and discovered that quite a horrific abduction had taken place. So um, people have uh, just kind of a natural blockage, and it's understandable. It's like, well, something weird happened, but I don't want to know anymore, because if I learn what really happened, then I'm not sure I can deal with it. And uh, that was the case here. Now, your uh, co-author on this project and the one previous, Michael O'Brien, also known as the travel psychologist, as a psychologist, how does perhaps his interviewing skills, I mean, what what does he bring to the table in terms of uh, his discipline and his, his interviewing skills when he's talking to some of these witnesses? I don't know who interviewed who in these cases, but... Well, almost uh, all of the accounts in the book are from uh, Michael's files, his world travels and his encounters with people where he has interviewed them about their travel experiences of all kinds, including ordinary experiences as well as extraordinary. And uh, as a psychologist, you know, he's looking for um, how are you engaged in this experience? What was the effect on you? How, How did you accept, deny, integrate? And uh, one of the things then that, uh, that I brought to the table with uh, all of these stories is um, sort of an analysis commentary at, at the end. And we did this in the other Road to Strange book, too, where we put the story into context with other similar stories and classic cases from ufology. How does this compare to what's already out there in the known literature? And I, I think that perspective um, really helps uh, the reader, sort of, uh, especially the reader who's new to this territory, navigate through this this territory, this uncharted territory uh, that uh, clearly indicates that human beings are experiencing intelligences from um, other origins. All right, Rosemary, we'll take a time out when we come back. Uh, we'll go. We'll dial back all the way to 1931 and Central Texas. Uh, this is a, uh, a tragic story of a young boy who was actually beaten for telling his parents about a mystery light he saw in the sky. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, co-author of The Road to Strange, UFOs, Aliens, and High Strangeness, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. 
Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us. We're going the full hour. And her new book, in which she co-authors with Michael Bryan, is The Road to Strange, UFOs, Aliens, and High Strangeness. Talk about being punished. We, we mentioned that earlier. Being punished, or at least uh, being dismissed, uh, you know, for talking about UFOs, or marginalized. But here we have a very tragic case of a young boy who's actually beaten. Tell me about uh, T.L. Murdoch. Well, he he lived uh, on a cotton farm in Texas, and uh, this event actually took place in 1931. It was many years later by the time Mr. Murdoch uh, really told his story for the for the first time because um, of the way he was treated uh, by his, his only family members. But it was a spring day. He was about four and a half years old, and we really can't discount experiences from children because they have legitimate experiences just like adults do but he's outside uh just enjoying the day and uh he sees something up in the sky that is very unusual and um he sees this round uh, he described it as a round shiny silver object and uh, it was sort of hidden by the clouds and then it's unhidden by the clouds but it's it's clearly something that's not an airplane uh he said it remained stationary and he said it looked to him like a, a big shiny eye that was just staring down at him. So um, he said he, he, you know, even at four and a half years old, he knew that it was not an airplane. Um, and how is it just staying fixed in the sky? And so, um, you know, he went home and first he told his mother. And what did she do? She backhanded him for telling a lie. And uh, it, this just absolutely made, amazed him, and it was quite a blow. Uh, and um, she said uh, that, um, you know, it's just his imagination, and then she um, criticized him for his dirty clothes being outside. In other words, she just uh, didn't listen to him and just assumed he was making something up. So uh, then he, he thought that uh, maybe his father would listen. And uh, his father got out the old-fashioned, um, you know, belt form of discipline that was very common back then and um, gave him a beating for lying. And he said it was really a brutal lesson that uh, at that very young age that you could be punished for telling the truth. I wonder, uh, I shudder to think about how many instances, you know, that occurred uh, and that that people were so traumatized, uh, the, ret- the retribution for telling their parents or someone else what they saw, they were beaten uh, in return. How many how many lives were utterly, you know, destroyed because of that? Uh, it's. It's hard to fathom, but I'm sure it uh, it uh, has happened many times over. And, uh, you know, we have other uh, comments from experiencers in the book uh, telling their stories about how they were ridiculed. And uh, it leaves um, quite, quite a stigma on people, especially if their story leaks out in the public, gets into the media, and then they've got uh, the general public jumping on them as well. And this is a very peculiar condition here in, in um, well, it's not just ufology, Richard. We see it in the paranormal as well, that 
uh, on one hand, um, there, there's a clamor for, uh, if this stuff is out there, let's see the evidence. Let's hear it from the witnesses. And then when witnesses come forward, what happens to them? Uh, they're just leaped upon and ridiculed and, and uh, shredded uh, for their credibility. They're made fun of. They're called hicks. They're delusional. They're drunk, uh, liars, whatever. Uh, and it's no wonder that uh, people often remain quiet about their experiences. Well, if you're not traumatized by the sighting or some encounter, uh, you end up being traumatized by the either the ridicule or an actual physical beating in this in this tragic case. Uh, we mentioned, or you mentioned earlier, the uh, the New Zealand UFO sighting, in which again the uh, the witnesses uh, were were jumped on and um, they tried to explain it away, saying it was squid boat lights. This is an interesting uh, case because, as you point out in the book, it's not one of the most dramatic uh, UFO sightings necessarily, uh, but it remains one of the best documented. Well, it is because of the film footage that was captured and was entirely unexpected. In fact, um, J. Allen Hynek um, said the case was, was very unusual and significant because of the film footage. And um, this was a case where a UFO had uh, been seen um, by pilots and and other people uh, over New Zealand, and a film crew was sent up in a plane um, basically just to recreate the experience for a documentary. Nobody was actually expecting to come face-to-face with a UFO. And while they were uh, up in the sky... Um, trying to do this recreation, they actually had uh, a real sighting of uh, of a mystery light and it was captured on film. And uh, there was a little bit of um, anxiety among the crew because there, there had been a recent case where uh, a pilot had disappeared, a pilot and his craft had disappeared after allegedly seeing something uh, unexplained in the sky. And so everybody's nerves were quite on edge. But um, the fellow who was doing the filming, a man by the name of David Crockett, uh, this really changed him. And, um, you know, he's got his camera there. He's, he's filming this um, uh, thing off, off the, the plane that they're seeing. And not hardly belie- he's hardly believing what he was seeing. And um, then to be met with, uh, oh, dismissal, um, these ridiculous explanations, uh, he, he almost became a missionary after that uh, to, to get his film footage out there and to, you know, spread the gospel, so to speak, that um, these are, are real events. There is hard evidence. It can't be uh, just dismissed. Bruce Maccabee looked at the footage and, and declared it to be uh, legitimate. But um, He's an optical physicist, uh. He is, yes, and uh, he had worked for the Navy. I think uh, Bruce is retired now, but uh, Bruce was often called as um, an expert to examine photographs and film footage. And so that's how uh, David Crockett's life was changed. And, uh, you know, like anyone with a a missionary sort of goal like that, you're going to find uh, some people who will believe you and a lot who won't. Uh, But uh, because of the film footage that was captured, this remains uh, one of the more significant cases on record, even though it's not one of the most famous. Uh, The Chicago O'Hare UFO incident of 2006 
uh, is in the book. And here, there's lots of denial going on here. We, I believe it was uh, over Concourse C, which would, I think it was the United Airlines um, Concourse, if I'm not mistaken, this sighting. And United Airlines, lots of denial coming them out after the fact and so forth. Even though I remember this story, it ran in the Chicago Tribune. I spoke to the um, the reporter uh, whose name escapes me for I, we did a TV episode on the O'Hare UFO episode and the online edition of that story uh, was the most popular news story in Trib history, the online version. Uh, but here we have a, um, a, a UFO enthusiast and a trained field observer who sees sees this remarkable event and of course then the denials start coming in tell me about that well the um the primary witness um was uh, actually a, a, a field investigator for mufon and so she had had training in um what to look for in uh, sighting cases and interviewing witnesses and she's looking out her uh, office window one day um, this was, uh, as you mentioned, in 2006, and uh, she sees an object that uh, looks to her like a UFO. It doesn't have any wings, um, and um, it's uh, moving off in uh, a southeasterly direction uh, toward uh, U.S. cellular field, and uh, she knows it's not an airplane, so immediately, because of her background, she's considering this must be a UFO, and she calls to one of her colleagues to come over to the window uh, and look at it. Um, and this is another thing that uh, is uh, a common theme in um, these cases, where there might be multiple witnesses who see it and agree on what they see uh, at the time, but then there's denial later. It's like, oh, well, you thought it was a UFO, but I don't know what it was, or I didn't see that. Um, and uh, that's, that's really what happened to her. And uh, so she did a little bit of triangulation on it. She had about a 30-second total sighting time on this and um, discovered, you know, that, you know, in her estimation, it, it was uh, genuinely an unexplained object that she saw. But her colleague said she didn't believe in UFOs, and so therefore it couldn't be that. And uh, there are a lot of people who just have this kind of blind, shuttered, um, I don't believe in that stuff, so therefore no matter what I see, it can't be that. And this is all very frustrating to eyewitnesses because then the person that they're looking to for corroboration isn't backing them up. I uh, I should clarify. I'm I'm an error. Uh, the this was not the o, the O'Hare UFO incident. That was in November of 2006. This was in what you're describing was in August 2006. This is a separate incident entirely. My apologies. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I thought you were talking about um, you know that that particular case. No, but, but same same year within months and another uh, another sighting in Chicago. Uh, we're coming up on a break, but I want to I want to get into the uh, the uh, the next section, which is the uh, um, mystery lights and craft. And there's a an interesting uh, illustration here by one of the witnesses and um, Billy Pekka. 
uh, draws this craft that uh, that he saw in September of 1976. Uh, you know, it looks like your typical, you know, flying UFO, domed on top, flat on the bottom, uh, the part in the middle rotates and so forth. Tell me about, about this sighting. We'll get it started now and then we'll uh, then I'll have to jump in and we'll continue after the break. But tell me about the Billy Pekka illustration. Well, this took place late uh, one night in uh, September 1976, and Billy was um, watching TV, and he noticed that the TV, uh, you know, the TV goes on the fritz, and all the appliances go on the fritz. It's like there's some big electrical outage going on, and and this often is a precursor to a sighting as well, especially if it's a visible craft. And uh, so he goes outside, uh, and sees this very strange um, craft up close uh, over his uh, over his farm. All right, and um, the authorities. Well, well, we'll pick it up on the other side. We'll uh, talk about the Billy Pekka sighting, and uh, we'll continue our conversation with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, co-author along with Michael Bryan of The Road to Strange: UFOs, Aliens, and High Strangeness, right here on the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. And we are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Again, the book, The Road to Strange, UFOs, Aliens, and High Strangeness, co-author Michael Bryan, a.k.a. The Travel Psychologist. We were talking about uh, the Michael uh, Pekka, or sorry, Billy Vincent Pekka uh, sighting. And uh, this is outside of a, I guess, a trailer house on the edge of town in Calusa, California in uh, 1976. Quite an interesting illustration here. You were describing that uh, earlier. And um, he, ta- he talked about how the experience really interfered in his life. A lo- I mean, a lot. It, it, tell me about that. Well, I did want to mention also about the appearance of the craft because he he talks about how it looks like there are rope-like cables that dangle down. Oh, yes, yes. And uh, there are many descriptions that that people give where they're seeing something that looks dome-shaped or saucer-shaped round, and they see protrusions issue from the side, like ropes or cables or pincers, and uh, start to come down to the ground. And he saw this as well. Now... Um, he went and stood, uh, in all there were three craft that he saw, but the main one, uh, he stood directly under it. He said for a good six minutes, and he looked up inside of it, and he said it seemed to have uh, like this ceramic uh, kind of finish to it. Uh, there were sort of silver and white and purplish kind of light, uh, and he uh, he could see deep inside the craft, but he couldn't see any beings in it. But he did sense that there was um, an intelligence to it. And um, the only thing that he could think of was, uh, oh, my gosh, uh, I need to protect myself and my family. And, of course, 
uh, people often have the irrational thought that if, if they have a rifle or a gun, for example, that if they go in and get it, they're going to have some sort of protection when, um, you know, that's not going to be any protection against the, this at all. But this craft starts to back off and it starts to head over to uh, neighboring properties. And so he rouses his wife and his daughter and he says, we've got to get out of here. And uh, they jump in their pickup truck and they go to a neighbor's house and report what they've seen. And they're worried about uh, the one neighbor in particular that this uh, craft uh, seemed to have another interest in. And uh, uh, interestingly, uh, a a couple of the people that they uh, contact uh, don't seem to be all that disturbed by it. The husband had been a pilot, had seen a lot of unusual things. Uh, they'd, uh, the husband and wife had slept through this whole experience, and the wife said, oh, well, we would have liked to have seen that, too. They weren't uh, at all alarmed by it. Hmm. And I mentioned earlier but, about, oh, so go ahead, yes. Well, Billy found, uh, like a, a lot of others, um, that he was uh, ridiculed for this. Now, the case was... Um, investigated quite thoroughly uh, by APRO, um, the uh, Coral um, and, um, oh God, what was... um, Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, APRO. Right, I was just blank on the the other couple's names there, the Lorenzans, they're both gone now, and APRO no longer exists. But they did an extensive investigation. They sent um, people to interview Billy. He had nightmares, repeating nightmares. Um, the, the dreams would always start where uh, he saw the craft and ended where it just d- disappeared in the sky. Uh, and there's this sense of vulnerability. Um, and um, he was advised to undergo hypnosis, uh, but he was really frightened to do uh, do that. And so, uh, so he didn't. But... Um, it, it is one of the more extraordinary cases on the record. The official, um, uh, there was a, a big blackout in, in the whole general area that was explained away naturally, but uh, Billy really thought that it was the presence of the UFOs that had um, caused the blackout because he said as soon as, as they were out, out of uh, the vicinity, all of his appliances came back on. And this is something that we find with um, many cases as well, that cars fail, appliances, equipment fail, and then as soon as the craft is out of the area, everything is uh, back uh, normal and running again. Right. Officials said there was um, a a disturbance at a substation uh, northeast of L.A. or something. That's how they explained it away. Uh, The other interesting aspect of the book is where we were talking about, you know, the why me factor and, and why I've always wondered this. You know, I've never seen a UFO, uh, and then there I know people that, that see them almost on a monthly basis. Uh, it's almost as if they choose who they'll reveal themselves to. And there's the case of Norma Jean Conroy, uh, who is a flight attendant. And it seems as if this UFO decided to reveal itself to her and her husband, but no one else. This, is, uh, this took place back in 1979 while she was working for United Airlines. Yes, and it was in Hawaii, and uh, she and her husband were uh, driving back home. They had separate cars. They'd been out. Uh, They were in separate vehicles. They were driving back home, and um, she notices these um, strange lights overhead, and uh, they're very low. She knows it's not a plane. 
Uh, for one thing, it's it's not on the flight paths um, that she's familiar with. The, the, this whatever it is is flying way too low for uh, a commercial aircraft, and so she stops her car and gets out to look at it. And her husband uh, stops his car and uh, looks at it too, and they see this huge thing uh, going overhead, and it's it's also traveling very um, very slow, which is would have been uncharacteristic for an airplane as well. So none of the things lined up to explain it away as, as a commercial aircraft. And uh, they did sort of go through their minds, you know, a checklist. Well, maybe it's a helicopter. No, it's not a helicopter. And uh, it it just goes slowly over and um, has sort of a humming sound to it. Uh, there seems to be an intelligence behind it, and it heads out um, uh, towards sea toward one of the other islands. I've got to jump in here, Rosemary. Um, We're going to take a quick time out. We'll come back and we'll continue on with this story of the flight attendant and her husband. I'm back with more right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Rosemary Allen Guiley, co-author of The Road to Strange, UFOs, Aliens, and High Strangeness. And uh, just before the break, we were talking about this uh, flight attendant and her husband. And back in the late 70s, she was working with United Airlines at the time. They saw this huge craft, slow-moving craft. And uh, you just pick it up from where we left off, Rosemary. Well, it does uh, start to pass over, and then uh, it did some strange aerial maneuvers. Um, Another common characteristic we find in these cases where people say they see lights and craft do things that a known craft can't do. And this thing made a 180-degree turn and and came back and um, made some other unusual movements and then uh, passed over and uh, went out toward uh, Molokai and disappeared in the clouds. Now... um, other people, this wasn't night, but nonetheless, nobody, here's two people uh, who have stopped by the road and are looking up in the sky, uh, obviously puzzled by something. Does anybody stop and want to know what's going on? No. Uh, and this also is a characteristic we find that others seem to be very uninterested in finding out what might be going on, uh, even when they're told to look up. Uh, and so they actually, uh, when they when they get home, she calls one of their friends who's an Air Force pilot and describes what they've seen and is there any possible explanation for it, and he doesn't have one. Uh, and it isn't in the news. If, if anybody, she is kind of mystified how no one else could have uh, missed this. Surely some of the people in the houses um, that this thing passed over might have observed it as well. Nobody seems to have reported it because it never landed in the media. And so uh, witnesses in this case often start second-guessing themselves. You know, uh, did did I have a real experience? Uh, what really happened? If no one else saw it, no one else reported it, 
um, then why did I have this experience? And I do think that uh, people have different, um, I, I guess you would call it psychic antenna, to unexplained phenomena and extraordinary phenomena and alternate realities. And there are individuals, as you mentioned, Richard, that have uh, even frequent sightings and encounters, and other people might even go their whole lives having none or maybe even one. And it, it seems that they're, they're just tuned into what I would say might be a different vibrational frequency where um, they experience these things, which I believe are around us all the time. In the alien uh, encounter section, there's a case of three sisters. Again, we go to California. Uh, and uh, missing time, about an hour and a half, they're on their way. I believe they were coming from their grandparents' place, tra- traveling back, three sisters, back to their parents' home. A trip that should have taken them, was it an hour and a half? And they were gone for four hours or something. So they, or they have this big chunk of missing time. That's the point. Uh, and, uh, of course, their father doesn't believe them, believes that they were out partying somewhere. Anyway, they eventually get none other than Alan Hynek, J. Alan Hynek involved. Tell me about this case. Uh, this was a particularly terrifying case for the, the primary witness who underwent the um, regression that I mentioned a little earlier. Um and uh, what happened with the, the three sisters was um, that there, there was really only one way to get home, and they had to go over a certain road and a certain bridge, and um, they wind up with these four hours of missing time, and, and their father doesn't believe them. They even get a map out um, to determine that um, there's no way they could have gotten lost and meandered around. They, they wound up um going over they suddenly realized that they were going over the same bit of road territory that they had gone over before and four hours uh, had gone missing and so the one sister was um her name was judy uh was was pretty rattled by this and she wanted to try and get to the bottom of it and someone recommended that she uh contact uh, j allen hynek and uh, he in turn put her in touch with other investigators um, he suggested that uh, she thought maybe she had been through a time warp. One of her friends said, oh, you, you had like sort of a time slip, and, and Heineck didn't think so. He thought that maybe an abduction had taken place. And so she undergoes this regression and um, has to relive uh, a really horrifying experience where uh, she finds herself... Um, out of the car and uh, aboard some sort of craft and she's undressed on this uh, what appears to be like a stainless steel table with a sheet over her just like a medical examining room and there are other people in the room other humans including um, a woman a young woman who seems to know who she is because she addresses her by name and so there are these beings coming in and out Uh, they have masks over their faces um, they're not very tall. They're only about five foot six. But then this being comes in that absolutely terrifies her, and she refers to him as the witch doctor. And he's quite tall. Um, he's uh, six to seven feet tall. He has this bulbous, almost insect-like head. Not a praying mantis, but um, kind of an insect-like head. Uh, and 
it, she said it was like you could see all the veins in him and they were red. You know, it's his skin is almost like translucent and there's um, something very evil and sinister about him. And she panics when she sees this being and, and he approaches her. And this other young woman who's lying uh, on a table next to her in the same room says, oh, it's okay, it's okay, don't worry, Judy, don't worry. And um, so she is subjected to, you know, some sort of examination, uh, and uh, not only by the witch doctor, but by these other beings. And this witch doctor entity seems to be the entity in charge. Uh, And that's often the case we find uh, in these shipboard uh, recounts where there is a different-looking being who seems seems to be in charge. Um, and she said she felt like a guinea pig, like a lab rat. And this is another theme for uh, these kinds of encounters. People say that they're treated like animals, uh, like we might put a, a, a rat on a, a lab table and do some sort of examining lower life form. Uh, she doesn't, she can't communicate um, and, and other people say they can't communicate with these beings. There's telepathic communication going on, and they're getting impressions from the beings, but they're not getting any information. It's just like they are literally uh, a lab rat. And this experience for her was so terrifying that when she was undergoing the regression, uh, she really had to be brought out of it because it, it was just too emotionally stressful for her. And um, in attempting to revisit the experience for more information, she even asked to skip over that part because uh, she just uh, could not deal with the terror uh, of of this um, experience and this horrible being that she called the witch doctor. Well, her two sisters, oh, so what happens then is that when the experience is over, uh, the smaller beings take her back, and suddenly she's back in her car. And she said they just sort of shoot her into the car, uh, and she's back behind the steering wheel. And she sits there in a daze for quite a while, and then uh, at some point her other two sisters uh, reappear in the car. And uh, her two uh, sisters were not interested in uh, delving into their experiences. They had, uh, you know, the more common reaction of, I don't want to know, because if I do know, then I might not be able to handle it. You mentioned uh, these insectoid-looking uh, creatures, and the these aliens that look like insect, insects or praying mantises often uh, appear in these abduction account, uh, accounts. Um, there is one in the book particularly harrowing. I mean, the one you just discussed was, was most frightening. Uh, but there's a, a gentleman in London. This is going back, I think, 2001, uh, and again, the classic sort of praying mantis overseer in this abduction account. Tell me about that. This was a, a series of abductions that went on for a number of years. And uh, Jim contacted me some years ago and and um, told me his account. He contacted other researchers as well. He did not give out his last name. And um, the experiences involved mostly these horrific praying mantis beings and then also some smaller beings that seemed to be their sidekicks which he described as cloaked and sort of beetle-like and uh, uh, here again it's the why me factor now uh, Jim said that he'd had some experiences earlier in life and we often find this in the background of experiencers that 
there are um, indications that, that they've had earlier encounters. But at any rate, the primary experiences start in 2001, and he's living on the outskirts of London, and he wakes up uh, in the middle of the night to find this, uh, what appears to be a praying mantis-looking being in this little beetle-like thing uh, by the side of his bed, and he thinks he's dreaming. Uh, and, uh, you know, he shuts his eyes and opens them, and then he realizes he's not dreaming. And uh, this experience then initiates periodic visitations from, uh, from these beings. Uh, sometimes it's a little cloaked being who comes by itself, and sometimes it's praying mantis. And uh, they mess around with him. They get inside uh, of his head. Um, he has uh, strange physical effects. He passes out. He wakes up bruised and like he's been run over by a truck. Uh, he starts to believe that he's been abducted, but he has, um, you know, no recollection of, of what's going on. And um, it, it gives him literally uh, all the symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And they're quite horrific. Uh, he sees these things come through walls. Uh, they're very sinister. Um, they have needle-like instruments, the praying mantis does. And uh, they go on and off for years, and sometimes he gets uh, a little bit of relief for a while, and then the experiences start up again, and he's powerless uh, to stop them. And he begins to have a more engagement with them, and, and uh, he describes one set of experiences where uh, he was shown... Uh, he was taken aboard uh, like a craft and then shown the planet Earth and places on the planet and things that were going on and describes in some detail what he says is an underground facility in the U.S. where there's thousands of aliens, uh, including these praying mantis-like beings, and they're hostile, they're malevolent, they have uh, no good intentions toward, the, toward uh, human beings. And uh, so he's given like uh, this information uh, and even previews of, of uh, you know, what might happen uh, in, in times to come. Uh, but they're not real forth like other beings in other experiences, they're not real forthcoming about what their agendas are, who they are. It's like, we'll get from you what we want, uh, but we're not going to tell you anything uh, other than what exactly we want you to know. And so finally... Um, he arrived after years of these traumatic experiences. Uh, he begins to notice that when he spends more time inside of London, um, it seems to put up a barrier against these beings. Uh, and that if he's outside in a more rural area, they seem to have access to him, but if he's in a big noisy city uh, where the energy is a lot different, uh, he seems to have some protection to him. And um, the last any of us uh, heard uh, from uh, Jim was um, around 2008, where he said he had moved uh, to, uh, to the city. Uh, he was still suffering from what he said was post-traumatic stress, but he wasn't being bothered anymore. Um, now, 
that may have been the case that he, he found some way to sort of block the access, but it could also be the case that the beings were done with him. We have so many accounts from abductees who say, uh, you know, the, the uh, encounters went on as long as they wanted them to, and when they were done with me, they stopped. Right, and in other cases, uh, it seems to be almost generational. Uh, Rosemary, we are out of time. I want to point out, though, before we go, uh, that uh, at the end of the book, there's a there's a, an appendix that includes an interview that Michael uh, uh, Bryan did, your uh, your co-author, with the late, great J. Allen Hynek, so people can look for that. And uh, how do they get a hold of The Road to Strange, UFOs, Aliens, and High Strangeness? It is available on Amazon and in ebook on Kindle, Nook, iBooks, and Kobo. Well, congratulations to both you and Michael, and uh, thank you for hanging out with me for another hour, Rosemary. Always a pleasure. And thank you, Richard. You stay warm now. I'll do my best. Out to shovel the driveway yet again. Rosemary Ellen Guiley back next week with a brand new program. Thank you to uh, Ian Robertson. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.